This is Carl DiMaggio, and you are listening to Inside Oz. Danger, danger, broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, David McLeod, and landed on his back. Fuck you! I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is, oh, shit. I'll be able to get it. talking about revolution but i saw that was revelation you frolicking with the devil's maiden i said i want my eyes back give them back to me here why not you took them yeah i'm a piece of shit i And welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Glad to have you all back again as we head into the fourth episode of this third series. I can't believe we're already approaching the midway point. So today we're going to be looking back at Series 3, Episode 4, Unnatural Disasters. Writing on this episode is credited to not only Tom Fontana, but to Bradford Winters as well. Returning to the show for the first time since being credited for the teleplay on two episodes in Series 2 and is the first time that there's been a shared written by credit on the show. I have mentioned before about how there was a writer's room on the show, but unless you wrote a significant portion of the episode, credit would fall to the executive producer, hence why most episodes are credited solely to Tom Fontana. The episode was directed by Chaz Palminteri, making his directorial debut, and this is where having different copies of the Oz DVD set comes in handy, as the Region 1 version of his episode came with a commentary track featuring Tom and Chaz. This all came about when Tom and Chaz attended the funeral of Noel Ben, who you'll remember had the episode Napoleon's Bony Parts dedicated to him, Noel having passed away the previous year. Chaz had made it known to Tom that he was looking to get into directing, and Tom being Tom, seemingly willing to give someone a chance, said, why don't you come do Oz? And Chaz thought that he was just joking, and he even mentioned that to his wife. A few weeks later, Chaz gets a call from his agent, who told him, Tom Fontana called, he wants to know your availability. Tom also mentions in that commentary that it was a lot of fun having Chaz on the set, and a lot of the cast were very excited to work with him. Born May 15th, 1952 in the Bronx, Colagero Lorenzo Palminteri grew up in Belmont, his grandparents having moved to the US in 1910 from Agrigento, Sicily, and graduated from Theodore Roosevelt High School before attending the Actors Studio in 1973. Chaz has gone on record in the past speaking about growing up around wise guys, something that has perhaps led to him being somewhat typecast as an ethnic tough guy. Chaz paid his acting dues off-Broadway in the early 1980s, as well as working a number of jobs, including being a doorman at a number of nightclubs. Making his film debut with a minor role in 1984's Home Free All, Chaz made his TV debut two years later, appearing in Hill Street Blues during the show's seventh season, and the following year appeared in the TV movie Glory Years, as well as two episodes of Matlock on ABC. Chaz got his big break in 1988, staging his autobiographical one-man show, A Bronx Tale, playing all 18 characters in the story of a young New Yorker torn between joining a life of organised crime and the values of a tough father. Premiering in Los Angeles to critical acclaim and attracting Hollywood interest, 
Chaz turned down an offer of $250,000 for the film rights, and the show moved to New York, where it played off-Broadway at Playhouse 91 on East 91st Street, again playing to critical success, and a run of sold-out shows from October 10th to December 24th, 1989. After attending a performance, Robert De Niro approached with an offer to buy the film rights to the show. Chaz accepted the offer on this occasion, on the proviso that he wrote the screenplay, as well as being cast in one of the lead roles. The film premiered in 1993, with Robert De Niro making his directorial debut and earning a Golden Lion nomination at the Venice Film Festival, and grossed over $17 million at the US box office, and was well received by critics. The film also features two Oz alumni, with Derek Simmons, who played Billy Keane back in Series 1, and Dominic Lombardozzi, who we'll see in Series 4. The following year, Chaz was cast in the Woody Allen-directed Bullets Over Broadway, starring alongside Joan Cusack and Diane Weist. Although not as successful as A Bronx Tale, the film grossing just over $13 million, Chaz received critical praise for his role as Cheech, and was nominated for a number of awards including a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a Supporting Role, as well as Best Supporting Actor at the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards and the Academy Awards in 1995. Also in 1995, Chaz played the role that I know him best for, appearing as Special Agent David Coogan in Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects. After missing out on awards for A Bronx Tale and Bullets Over Broadway, Chaz won the saint Jordi Award for Best Foreign Actor, an award which recognised both of those films, as well as his role in The Usual Suspects. In 1996, Chaz earned producer and writer credits for Dante and Debutante, as well as a writing credit for the movie Faithful, while in 1998 he appeared in Scar City, as well as making an uncredited role in A Night at the Roxbury, playing the part of Benny Zadir, and in 1999 reunited with Robert De Niro in the gangster comedy Analyze This, before directing Here on Oz. Holding an 8.7 on IMDb, the episode was originally broadcast on August 4th, 1999, a day which saw British Defence Minister George Robertson named as the new Secretary General of NATO, while in Russia, Yuri Lushkov's Fatherland Party merged with the All-Russia Movement, and at the Pan Am Games in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, Cuban high jumper Javier Sotomayor was stripped of his gold medal after testing positive for cocaine. Cuba's Chief of Sports Medicine, Mario Grande, claimed that the athlete had been a victim of sabotage, while Cuban President Fidel Castro claimed the whole thing was a setup by the Cuban-American Mafia. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah. God sends Moses to be the deliverer, then throws a curveball. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, so Pharaoh won't let the Israelites go. Moses set my people free. Pharaoh, keep them captive. Hey God, whose side are you on? Acts 1 opens with Augustus wearing his best monk's robe, quoting Exodus 3-7 as he lights ceremonial candles and then calls God out for throwing Moses a curveball, and asks whose side are you on? These Augustus segments were given a lot of free reign to the directors of each episode, Tom Fontana giving them some notes about what the dialogue was, but they were told to just have fun with it, so each time that we've seen Augustus throughout this series in a different costume, that has been the decision of the director, 
And as I've mentioned before, it really opened up these segments from what they would have been able to do if he was still floating in his rotating box. The main episode opens up with Officer Menio delivering the news to Schillinger in the mailroom about it being a bouncing baby boy in regards to Andrew arriving in Oz, and that he's been placed in M-City rather than Genpop. Schillinger obviously isn't pleased about this, and he demands to speak to Leo as we cut to his office. Schillinger is pleading with Leo to let Andrew join him in Genpop, because Keller, Beecher and Ryan have been waiting for a chance to mess with him, and that by putting Andrew in M-City, McManus has offered him up to them on a silver platter. He mentions to Leo about his daughter being attacked and raped, and that Leo knows how it feels to want to protect his children, but Leo is taking great joy in watching Schillinger squirm now that the shoe is on the other foot, and says that Schillinger must really love his son to have to come into Leo's office and ask him for a favour. Not being one to labour the point, Leo says that it must be chewing Schillinger up to have to stand there begging for his son's life, and he even makes Schillinger admit that that's what he's doing. He reminds Schillinger of all the times that he's needed something from him, and how Schillinger would just smirk and sing Duda, which I think was supposed to be a callback to Schillinger singing Dixieland, but I've always associated that Duda with Camp Town Races. Camp Town ladies sing this song. The Camp Town race track five miles long. Schillinger makes one final plea, telling Leo that this is his son they're talking about. But Leo says that Schillinger has two sons, and that maybe he'll be luckier with a second one before excusing Schillinger from his office. Great little scene here between these two, and seeing Leo revel in Schillinger's misery and desperation was really good. We've seen before that Leo can be a right vindictive prick when he wants to be, but as a black male when you've got a guy like Schillinger with his... outlook, let's call it, coming and asking for help, I don't blame him one bit for milking this for all it was worth. We go to M-City where Andrew is hanging out in that dark drug-taking corner underneath the stairs, which we haven't been to for quite some time, and he takes a bump of heroin. So as I touched upon last episode, Andrew Schillinger is played by Frederick Kohler. Born June 16th, 1975 in Queens, New York, Frederick started acting at a very young age, appearing in a number of TV commercials, and making his acting debut in 1982 on Saturday Night Live at just six years of age. Frederick would play a number of roles on the show, including a young version of ABC sports journalist Howard Cosell, between 1982 and 1985. Frederick made his film debut playing the role of Alex Butler in 1983's Mr. Mom, before landing his first major acting role playing Chip Lowell on CBS's Kate and Alley, which ran for six seasons between 1984 and 1989. In addition to this, he also appeared in the films The Almost Royal Family in 1984 and The Pickup Artist in 1987. After appearing in 1991's A Kiss Before Dying and 1993's clumsily titled TV movie, The Positively True Adventures of the Alleged Texas Cheerleader Murdering Mom, Frederick attended Carnegie Mellon University, graduating with a degree in theatre. Returning to TV in 1997 with an appearance in All My Children, Frederick made his stage debut the following year, playing the lead in The Cripple of Inishman in Los Angeles, and off-Broadway in When I Was a Girl I Used to Scream and Shout before appearing here on Oz. We go to the laundry room where Keller and Ryan are pondering why exactly McManus has put Andrew in M-City, Keller thinking that it could be a setup. Ryan doesn't think that it is though, saying that McManus hates Schillinger as much as they do, and that maybe McManus is looking for them to make what he calls the right move. Keller picks up on that phrase, questioning whether or not Ryan means that McManus wants them to kill Andrew, 
but Ryan laughs it off, saying that Schillinger hates that his son uses drugs, and mentions that Andrew has already bought a shed load of drugs from him, despite only being an MC for a couple of days, and asks whether or not they should let Andrew suck on those tits until he overdoses. Beecher chimes into the conversation, taking a page out of McManus's appearing from out of nowhere book, but they're interrupted by Andrew, who asks Ryan for some more drugs, to which Ryan obliges and leaves the room. It's interesting to see this alliance forming between Keller, Ryan and Beecher, especially considering that we've seen very little interaction between Keller and Ryan. Having said that, Ryan never seems to pass up on an opportunity that will benefit him in the long run, and isn't necessarily loyal to any one person or group. We know that he hates Schillinger, but you can bet that if an opportunity came up to do business with the Aryans that would be of benefit to him, that he wouldn't pass it up. Later in the cafeteria, Ryan shouts across at Schillinger about Andrew, who he finds with his face down in a tray of food. He pulls Andrew up and he's got a massive blob of mashed potato right up his nose, it's fucking hilarious. And Schillinger asks Officer Lepresti about whether or not Oz has a no drug policy. Lepresti tells him yeah and Schillinger says so much with just a hand gesture, as if to say, look at the state of him. Lepresti tries to escort Andrew away, but he suddenly springs to life and screams, Fuck you, Dad! and tries to make a run for it, vaulting up onto one of the tables. Beecher grabs his foot as he runs by, and Andrew falls so hard that he transitions into a different scene altogether as he's locked away in the hole. Shots like that can look really silly if done poorly, and sometimes stink of someone being fresh out of film school, but that one was done pretty well. Schillinger meets with Sister Pete and says that he wants Andrew to be part of a drug rehab group. Again, something that we haven't seen on the show in quite some time. In fact, I don't think we saw it at all during Series 2. She agrees to allow Andrew into the program, but says that it's going to be on Andrew to stop using, as Schillinger spots Beecher at the window. He leaves the scene telling Sister Pete that she should get some curtains, as Beecher enters and Pete tells him about Andrew joining the group, asking whether or not that's going to be an issue for him. Beecher tells Anurn that he's actually looking forward to it as we cut to the drug counselling session. I've mentioned before about how well the show does of just hitting on points to remind us of what has gone before. Sometimes it's a little more on the nose than others and can sometimes come across as clunky, but here we're reminded that Beecher is still a recovering addict, but it's done in a way that reminds us of it without him having to suffer some sort of relapse. So the group consists of, from left to right, Augustus, Keller, who is here for some reason, but I don't remember him touching any drugs. Ryan, some guy in a hat. Beecher, Andrew, some blonde guy, and a black man. I think the blonde guy is Philip Featherston, who's been a background character from Series 2 onwards. He was part of the group who got their GED, and he was one of the four Irish let back into the refurbished MC. The actor who played him, Brett Gillen, it's said that his brother used to work as a CEO at San Quentin and would supposedly, I've no idea if this is true or not, he would send confiscated items to the set to be used as props. One of those supposed items was apparently a tattoo gun which Tom Fontana would allegedly have the word mine tattooed onto people's asses. I'm willing to suspend my belief for most of that story, but I'm not for a second buying that last bit. I'm going to give that a 3 out of 5 on the McManus bullshit meter. Bullshit! 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 Sister Pete welcomes Andrew to the group and explains how it operates, but he tells her to go fuck herself, which sets Keller off saying that he does swear at nuns. It's great to see the respect that certain inmates have for Sister Pete. They're all terrible people in various ways, and some of them wouldn't think twice about taking another man's life, but swear at a nun? Hell no, that is crossing the line. 
Andrew and Keller get into a shouting match and both rise to the feet. But before they can come to blows, which is lucky for Andrew because Keller would have destroyed him, Beecher lamps Keller in the face and he and Andrew leave. Back in MC, Keller confronts Beecher about how he was supposed to punch him in the stomach. But Beecher says that he had to make it look real, just like when Keller hit Mark Mack, which is another great callback. He asks where Andrew is and Keller points him towards the drugstairs. And I really like the Muslims in the background here. You've got Hamid teaching them some self-defense moves. He and Arif are starting to dress differently from the rest of the group, which is something that we'll revisit another time. Beecher heads to the stairs where he finds Ryan telling Andrew that he's cutting him off from the drug supply because he has other customers to think of. Andrew says that Ryan isn't the only one dealing, but Ryan doesn't think that he'll use someone else because of his beliefs before giving a not-so-subtle look in Beecher's direction and then leaves. Beecher asks if he's okay, but Andrew just wants to know if Beecher has any drugs, but he's out of luck as Beecher goes for a talk with McManus. You must think I'm an idiot. You want me to move Keller out of your pod and move Andrew Schillinger in? You're wondering what I'm going to do to the son of a guy who double-fucked me. It crossed my mind. McManus, the kid's been here how many days? I haven't heard him, though I've had plenty of opportunities. The truth is, after seeing him in group, my heart goes out to Andrew. With a fuck like Schillinger for a father, you can understand why a kid would turn to drugs. God knows, I've been there. I think I can help him. I want to help him. Look, Beecher. <clears throat> Sister Pete says you stood up for her. Andrew's sharing a pond with another Aryan. Schillinger's told his pals to ignore him. So the kid's becoming more and more isolated. And you don't want that. Not that I would pretend to know what you do want or why you brought him to M City in the first place. You must have been a pretty good lawyer. You can be fairly persuasive when you want to be. When it's important. He gets hurt at your ass. Little Andrew is going to be as safe as if he was in his mother's arms. So Beecher has done enough to convince McManus to go ahead with the pod move. And that mention of Beecher being a good lawyer is either Beecher being persuasive, which McManus does mention, or it's another example of Mamanus' own naivety, as it's not the first time that he's fallen for this kind of thing. Either way, Keller is out and Andrew is in, and he thanks Beecher for standing up for him, and what we get here is a mirror image of the scene we had right back at the start of the show when Beecher moved in with Schillinger. It's not verbatim the same, but it's pretty close in that it hits the key points of the thank you and asking about the tattoos. It also shows how far Beecher has come since that time when he was the naive one, but now he's very calculated and savvy. Andrew is very proud of his Nazi tattoo and asks if Beecher has any. Beecher says that he does, but he isn't willing to show them, saying that he doesn't know Andrew that well just yet, as the scene closes. I really liked this part of the episode, and the new alliance between Keller, Ryan and Beecher was an interesting one, especially in how they're going to get their plan to work. All of them have an axe to grind with Schillinger, but all three of them come at Andrew from different angles. Keller is the confrontational one, while Ryan is pushing Andrew towards the drugs, and all the while you've got Beecher making out that he's Andrew's friend and is trying to earn his trust. It's still not clear what their endgame is, but we'll come back to that another time. We get another Augustus vignette, this time dressed as the Egyptian pharaoh, mentioning the ten plagues that God inflicted. And again, this is from the Book of Exodus, and continues throughout the rest of the episode. 
Leo runs into McManus and tells him, he doesn't ask, he tells him, to be in his office at noon for a meeting with the officers' union president and the state's attorney. Leo says that he might want to have his lawyer present because Claire is suing him for sexual harassment, and that McManus should have told him that he was fucking Claire when he told him to fire her. Cut to Leo's office, where the president of the union, Mr. Strouch, played by Bruce McVitie, is saying that the staff will need to undergo sensitivity training, and that he wants Claire reinstated immediately. So it turns out she was actually fired last episode, something that wasn't made clear at the time. McManus' lawyer is played by Enid Graham, who's actually mislabeled on IMDb as being Kenny's mother, and she reaffirms McManus' innocence, but we're reminded about the inmates seeing the fight between McManus and Claire which Strauss tries to say was McManus forcing himself onto her. But McManus goes on the defensive, explaining about their relationship and that they had consensual sex. The state's attorney, the brilliantly named Mr Axelrod, played by Kevin Greer, says that the state will settle out of court and that Claire can return to work when she feels ready, as McManus looks pissed. We get a quick scene between Claire and McManus in the locker room to close out Act 1. You say one word to me, and I'll scream. Act two then, and it starts off with Saeed telling Arif and Amid that he has to go for a meeting. The two of them shoot disapproving glances at each other, but Saeed tells him that he's meeting with his sister. So despite what we saw earlier with the Muslims learning some self-defense moves as a group, there is still a clear divide between them with regards to Saeed's meetings with Trisha Ross. Cut to the visiting room where we meet Saeed's sister, Reverend Truman, played by Ernie Fader Lampley. Born Vera Lampley on April 15th, 1959 in Oklahoma City, Ernie attended an all-white Catholic girls' school, something that would inspire her later work. After moving to Ohio, she studied at Oberlin College, majoring in creative writing. But with a desire to study abroad, Ernie moved to Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which gave her the opportunity to study in Ghana. The experience, however, wasn't pleasant, as being an American citizen, she was considered to be an outsider to the African natives, who nicknamed her the Dark Kalamazoo, which later became the title for Ernie's autobiographical play. Returning to the US, Ernie graduated college before undertaking the Leela Aitchison Wallace American Playwrights course at Juilliard in New York, as well as becoming a member of the drama department at the New York Theatre Workshop. Her debut play, Mixed Babies, earned the Helen Hayes Award for Outstanding New Play, and was followed up in 1997 with the previously mentioned The Dark Kalamazoo, which itself earned her an Outstanding Leading Actress nomination at the Barrymore Awards, once upon its debut, and again when the play was restaged in 1999. However, Ernie was unsuccessful on both occasions. After appearing on Broadway in 1991's Muleburn at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre, Ernie launched her TV acting career in 1993, with an appearance in the debut episode of Homicide Life on the Street, as well as in two episodes of NYPD Blue, and two episodes of Law and Order, one in 1993 and another in 1996, before making her film debut in 1995's The Keeper, appearing alongside Giancarlo Esposito and Oz alumni O.L. Duke, as well as Money Train, which itself featured Oz alumni Nelson Vasquez, who we'll see later on, as well as Skip Sudeth. With credits in 1996's Lone Star and Jungle to Jungle in 1997, 
only returned to TV with appearances in the TV movie First Do No Harm, as well as one episode of A Will of Their Own, returning to film once again in 1999, appearing in Advice from a Caterpillar before appearing here on Oz. She tells Saeed that she's had a visit from Trisha, who's been trying to get back in touch with Saeed, but he's been ignoring her. She asks him why, but Saeed has no answer, which confirms what his sister has been thinking about the two of them being in love. Saeed tries to explain that he's only met with Trisha twice, and that he can't possibly be in love with her. But the Reverend says that sometimes that's all it takes, and also mentions about how she was hurt when Saeed turned his back on Christianity, which is something that I don't think has been previously mentioned on the show feeling that he was turning his back on her and their father, who was presumably involved with the church also. Saeed acknowledges that he hurt her, but things soon break down into the Reverend bringing up Saeed's ex-wife and her being white, which he seems to have a real problem with, and asks why Saeed is trying to be something that he isn't. Saeed gets very angry at what he's being told, saying that he is black, a Muslim, and a man, and that sometimes those three things war with each other. He says that he isn't proud of his feelings for Trisha, but he's not ashamed of them either, and that when he shuts his emotions down, then Oz has truly won. Another good little scene here, and we get some additional backstory to Saeed that's never been alluded to before. His name before his Muslim conversion has come up before, but the history of Saeed's previous faith is something that still remained a mystery. Cut to Saeed in his pod, and Poet has come to talk with him in an effort to mend fences. He says that he let Saeed down by ending up back in Oz, and that he hasn't been writing since, and he even mentions about it being a form of self-punishment, and that he feels like half of himself without his poetry. Saeed asks whether or not Poet is asking for his blessing to write again, which Poet nods at, and Saeed gives his blessing, which makes Poet very happy, and says that he's dedicating his first new poem to Saeed, saying that he is an inspiration to all of them. Saeed, however, politely asks him not to do so, and that Poet should write for himself. And he also says that he isn't better than Poet, and finishes by saying that he's just a punk just like the rest of them. That t-shirt that Poet is wearing in this scene, turns out you can still buy it from HouseOfNubian.com, so presumably it's a pretty famous bit of merch. Saeed meets with Trisha, who tries to tell him that she's glad that he called, but Saeed doesn't want to talk. Instead he puts his hand out for her to hold, which she does. Poet is also in this scene with someone who I assume is his mum, and he notices Saeed and Trisha's hand-holding as the scene fades to black. In these three scenes, Saeed is wearing a different kufi to what he was earlier in the series, this one being plain white as opposed to having the gold decoration, symbolic of him losing his crown as leader of the Muslims, but also perhaps of losing the respect of other inmates. We go to Sister Pete's office where she is once again meeting with Keller and asking about breaking Beecher's arms and legs, but Keller is quick to point out that it was Schillinger that broke his legs, which she asks whether or not that makes him feel any less guilty. He asks her whether or not she considers herself a shrink first or a nun, Pete answering that she's a shrink, which leads to Keller asking why she wants to crawl around in people's heads. This whole section is a testament to how Keller manages to manipulate people, because Sister Pete is supposed to be the one who's asking the questions, and as I've mentioned before, she doesn't take any shit from anyone normally. But he's managed to turn the tables completely, and is getting her to open up to him about what she wants to gain from her psychiatry. That being that she wants to help people by getting them to see life from a different angle, and hopefully cope better. Keller shoots her that smile of his, and she opens up more, and he angles in and sits as though he's hanging on her every word 
And this is something that Sister Pete probably doesn't get to experience very often. She doesn't even seem to realise that it's Keller who's asking the questions. She's completely fallen under his spell. As they talk, Keller tells her that it isn't her fault that her patients don't get better, and how she wonders about whether or not she's good enough. Which must have been brutal for Pete to hear. But it's all part of this process of him breaking her down and making her question herself, which is something that we'll come back to in a future episode. The bell rings signifying that visiting hours are beginning, and Keller jumps out of his chair to head out, but makes sure to tell Pete that he's visiting with one of his ex-wives. Pete is just sat there in silence. Clearly Keller has managed to touch upon something that she hasn't thought about herself. We see Keller visiting with his ex, who's not bad looking by any stretch, a sentiment shared by Kenny and Junior, and Pete passes by and spots Keller through the window. Quite why she's gone down there is a mystery, but clearly something Keller said has made her want to see him meet with his ex, and is making her question everything as we also see her looking at her qualifications in her office. I'm intrigued to see where this story goes, but it's a great example of how and why Keller is able to get under people's skin. And Chris Maloney and Rita Marino have had some great chemistry on screen so far. Thankfully, Ray turns up to take Keller off of Pete's mind, and mentions about Leo convincing Miguel to take part in the Victor Offender program. Pete mentions that she's on her way to meet with Miguel, and Ray says that he wants to come along too. But Pete doesn't think that that's a good idea. Not to undermine the relationship that Ray has with Miguel, but instead feeling that she needs to build a rapport with him too. Ray wants to participate, but Pete has to take the reins on this one and tells him no, and that from now on, it's between Miguel, Rivera, and herself. Kind of felt for Ray a little bit here, because he does have the strongest relationship with Miguel out of most of the staff, but ultimately I think what Sister Pete is going for is the right approach, because Ray would probably struggle to remain impartial. We get a flashback of Rivera having been attacked and entering the staff room, and it's all gone a bit Sin City, or maybe even a bit Schindler's List being in black and white with just a splash of colour. Something that I picked up from the DVD commentary that I didn't get to talk about when this happened, Nelson Vasquez, who plays Rivera, he was kept away from the other actors prior to filming this scene, meaning that they hadn't seen him in the makeup with his eyes removed, and ultimately we ended up getting some very real reactions from everyone. I love the idea of Tom Fontana just fucking with people in order to get the reactions that he wanted. Pete meets up with Miguel and asks if he would be willing to meet with Rivera, but Miguel doesn't seem to be going for it, asking what the point would be. Pete says that it will not only allow Rivera to express his feelings, but perhaps most importantly, it will allow Miguel to explain why he attacks him and also take responsibility. Miguel says that he does that every day in solitary, but Pete tells him that solitary is only punishment, not remorse. Pete is great here once again, she's like a mum giving a kid a telling off. Miguel eventually agrees to take part, and Pete tells him that Leo has arranged to temporarily release him from solitary. But Miguel asks what the catch is, he knows that Leo isn't going to let him out for free. The deal breaker is that at some point, Miguel has to give up the person that raped Leo's daughter. Otherwise, he's straight back to solitary. She leaves him to contemplate what he wants to do, saying that this isn't a way out, but rather a way in, and leaves to give Rivera a call. But instead, she talks with his wife, Tina. And I think this is the first time that we've heard Pete's surname used on the show. She's always either been Sister Pete or Sister Peter Marie before this. She asks about meeting with them, as we see Miguel make his way back to M-City, who was greeted by El Cid and Chico, before we cut to Sister Pete meeting with the Riveras. 
You want us to forgive Alvarez? There is no expectation of forgiveness. Come on, sister. We're Catholic too, we know what you're after. I am not here as a nun. Not even as a psychologist. I'm here simply to encourage discussion, to listen, to help clarify your feelings. Clarify? What the fuck does that mean, clarify? Clarify what? Tina. No, Eugene. What do you need to clarify to that piece of shit? He gouged your eyes out. Blind forever. Forget solitary. Alvarez should be on death row. End of story. Why do you want to go through with this crap? Baby, you don't have to be here, but I do. And I need you to understand that. Who says Alvarez is going to give Eugene what he wants? If I sense a dead end, it's over. And either party can call it quits at any time. You know what I want? To look at him in the eye? Just for a second to have him see me. What he did. And to find out why. Why? So in amongst Tina's ranting and raving, she says that Miguel should receive the death penalty for the attack. Unfortunately for her, the odds of that happening are extremely low, as the death penalty is almost exclusively used for murder convictions. Only two people have ever appeared on death row for non-murder related crimes, those being Patrick Kennedy and Richard Davis in the state of Louisiana, although neither man was executed, Kennedy's sentence being struck down by the US Supreme Court in 2008. Some states do have the death penalty for crimes other than murder, namely for the rape of a child, but the only state that could have executed Miguel would have been Montana, which has capital punishment for the crime of aggravated assault by incarcerated persistent felons or murderers. Tina Rivera is played by Judy Reyes in one of her first recurring acting roles after graduating from Hunter College. Prior to this, the only other recurring role she had was on ABC's Nothing Sacred, and even that was only for two episodes. She did have other acting credits, making her debut in 1992 on Law and Order, as well as appearances on Jack and His Friends, The Cosby Mysteries, and NYPD Blue, but this will have been her first major recurring role as an actress. We get another Pharaoh Augustus vignette, this time discussing the plague of frogs and gnats, the second and third plagues, before going to the showers where El Cid interrupts Miguel. He asks why Miguel is keeping quiet, joking about whether or not someone's cut his tongue out like his father. But Miguel confronts him, saying that he did what El Cid wanted, so maybe he has something to say to him instead. El Cid asks why Miguel is out of solitary, as Miguel explains about the program. But El Cid is convinced that Miguel has given them up, either for the Rivera attack or for selling drugs. But surely if that was the case, then El Cid and Chico would have been sent packing by now. El Cid reminds Miguel about making a pledge to the gang, as Miguel assures him that he's in. And El Cid seems to have a newfound respect for Miguel, echoing back to him saying that he didn't think Miguel had it in him following the Rivera attack at the end of the last series. With Carlo back in the hall, it's left the Latinos with no representation in the boxing tournament, so El Cid tells Miguel that he's replacing Carlo. But Miguel seems reluctant due to the medication that he's on, saying that it's stopping him from going crazy. El Cid, being a qualified doctor and all, tells him to stop taking the meds, because Crazy wins fights, as we see Miguel in the gym training, Ryan making sure that Cyril is keeping an eye on any potential future opponents. And with that, we transition into the O'Reilly segment of the episode, with them waking up in MC. 
Ryan tells Cyril to get up so they can go work the kitchen and then train. But Cyril doesn't want to box today. In fact, he doesn't want to box full stop. But Ryan tells him to quit whinging and get up. Ryan makes his way downstairs, having a conversation with the Latinos, asking Miguel about his fight with Jason Kramer, who unfortunately is referred to as the fag for most of this episode, and almost every other appearance he has. Looking back through 2020 eyes, that is obviously massively offensive, but that is the parlance of Oz, same as with the various racist terms that are used, and obviously I will steer clear of using that term as best as I can. And of course, I mean no offence to anybody. Ryan collects some betting winnings from Chico, but he says that there is no way that Cyril beat Robson fairly, as he and Ryan get into each other's faces. El Cid of all people calms things down, saying that no one is accusing Cyril of cheating, and tells Chico to take a walk, as we get the crime flashback of Jason Kramer. Prisoner number 98C, 931, Jason Kramer. Convicted September 6th, 98. Murder in the first degree, kidnapping, assault with a dangerous instrument. Life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So Jason Kramer trying to send a dead body through the post there. I did try to find out if this was based on a true crime or not, but couldn't find anything to suggest that it was based on anything from this time period. Although I did come across the case of Luca Magnotta, who some of you might know from the Netflix series Don't Fuck With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer, but who more specifically was convicted in 2014 of murdering and dismembering a Chinese student, mailing their hands and feet to elementary schools, as well as the offices of federal political parties. That's where the similarities end, though, as Jason Kramer, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't committed any feline-based felonies, and is played by Robert Berg. Born August 27, 1964 in Minden, Nebraska, Robert moved around as a young child, growing up in Hayes, Kansas, as well as Richmond, Kentucky. Graduating with Phi Beta Kappa honors from Colorado College and with a degree in international political economics, Robert was a founding member of the New Group Theatre Company. An accomplished athlete, Robert played basketball in college, setting the single-season scoring record in his senior year, and holds a third-degree black belt in traditional Taekwondo. Making his TV acting debut in two episodes of Another World in 1991, Robert also appeared in two episodes of As the World Turns in 1993. Appearing mostly in minor roles both on TV and in film, Robert's most notable role saw him appear as Paul Erickson in the Series 2 premiere of Sex and the City on HBO, before appearing here on Oz a month later. His flashback and the segment with Augustus introducing him, I really liked how it transitioned between the two as if this post office worker was opening up the box and it containing Jason and Augustus inside. One thing that I don't understand though is how Jason has avoided the death penalty after being convicted of murder in the first degree. With his conviction coming in September 98, this is well past the point in which Devlin reinstated the death penalty and after the executions of Jefferson Keane, Donald Groves and Richard Lytalian. That could just be an oversight, or there could be a storyline explanation that comes up later, but I can't recall if there is one. So Ryan meets up with Jason down at what I think is called a commissary, which is basically a little shop within the prison. Ryan asks Jason how he's feeling about the upcoming fight, and mentions that Miguel has been looking in good shape, and that going against him takes balls. And he says that Jason's going to need them, because he's overheard El Cid and the other Latinos saying that they're going to hurt Jason's boyfriend, Anthony. 
This lights a fire under Jason, as Ryan tells him that the odds are 50 to 1 in Miguel's favour. Jason figuring that nobody thinks a gay person can defend themselves, before he then utters one of the cheesiest lines we've heard on the show. Well, let me tell you something, O'Reilly. There's only two things I know how to do. Fight and suck. It's not often that I'm critical of the dialogue on the show, because for the most part, it's pretty solid. Sure, it can be clunky at times and downright uncomfortable with how offensive it can be, but that goes a long way to establishing the world of Oz and the people who inhabit it. That line from Jason, though, is just fucking horrific in how bad it is. There's a line in Scarface where Tony Montana says, all I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I think that is what they were swinging for here, but it misses wildly. Anyway, Ryan takes out a roll of cash to buy whatever he's after, but he's approached by Chucky and two of his Italian goons. He reminds Ryan that all betting goes through him, and asks if Ryan's been doing any extra on the side. Ryan denies that he has, but Chico says that maybe he should just pay him just a little bit as a sign of good faith. Ryan pays up and the conversation moves to the Miguel-Jason fight, with Ryan saying that he's betting on Jason to win, which nobody else is because apparently a gay man couldn't possibly win a fight. Chucky even calls it a crazy bet, as we get a flashback of Cudney stealing the chloral hydrate from the last episode. There's a quick exchange of him passing it off to Ryan under the M-City stairs, which are certainly making up for lost time having not been on the show for so long, and Cudney, while admitting it's none of his business, asks Ryan what he's doing with the drugs. Ryan tells him that he's right, it's none of his business, and leaves as we then see him putting another heroic dose of the liquid into Miguel's water bottle, and he even throws in a little spin move like a cocktail waiter as he puts it back up on the shelf. We join the fight in progress as Miguel lands some good shots on Jason, and even manages to put him on the canvas before the bell rings to end the round. Much like the previous Cyril Robson match, the following rounds play out to Miguel succumbing to the effects of the chloral hydrate, himself suffering a knockdown before taking a barrage of punches from Jason, Dagnasty stepping in to stop the fight and declare Jason the winner, and he soaks in the adulation of some and the apathy of others in the crowd to close out Act 2. The thing with having different directors on each episode meant that not all the fights look the same. The effects of the drugs on Miguel are similar with the slow motion and the echoey sound, but whereas Cyril and Robson were shot quite close up, making you feel a part of the action, this fight has a mixture of that as well as long shots similar to an actual sports broadcast, which I really liked. It did just enough to make it feel different to the last episode. In the closing moments of the fight as well, there's a shot of Boos Malles who looks like he's on the verge of a breakdown. Presumably, he's laid a pretty big bet on Miguel picking up the win. Darkness. For three days straight, only darkness. Think of it. Sitting in your house for three days. No lights. No TVs. Not even the flashlight you keep for blackouts. Pharaoh, just sitting there on his throne. In the dark, wondering when it's all going to end. All because of God. Doesn't make sense, does it? Pharaoh taking the blame for what God was going to do anyway. Fuck yeah, it makes sense. Pharaohs brought it on themselves and their people. 430 years the Israelites were slaves, one Pharaoh after another. No one gets away with that, dead or alive. So Act 3 opens up with the inmates watching Miss Sally, but they're interrupted by Cudney and the other Christian inmates. Ryan calling them the God Squad, which is one of my favourite terms ever. 
and they stand in front of the TV declaring that they know that the show isn't watched for its educational value and he's just been told to fuck off by everyone. Murphy tries the diplomatic approach, telling Cudney to move away, but when Cudney refuses, he calls for a lockdown as we go off to the gym where McManus is hammering away on the heavy bag. Leo approaches, jokingly calling him champ, but McManus doesn't want to be disturbed because he's imagining hitting Saeed. Okay, so, first off, this is another one of those scenes where Leo and McManus let the guards down a little bit and are not Warden Glynn and Unit Supervisor McManus. They're just Leo and Tim, scenes I always really like where they just get to be a couple of guys. But secondly, Terry Kinney has some good form on that punching bag. He's clearly trained before, which got me wondering, why wasn't the prize for winning the tournament a chance to fight McManus? Saeed touched upon it being about having bragging rights for the respective tribe, but I can't help but feel that everyone would have trained even harder at the prospect of being able to smack McManus in the face and not have any repercussions. Leo asks McManus how Clayton is getting on in MC, but McManus says that truthfully, Clayton is just hanging on and that he doesn't think that Clayton has what it takes to be a CO. Leo explains about knowing Clayton's father and how he was killed in Oz, which McManus doesn't seem to be aware of, which took me back a bit. Surely that is the kind of information that would have been given before Clayton started, or surely Clayton would have mentioned that at some point himself. Leo punches us in the face as we go back to MC, with Ryan bragging to Miguel about how much money he made from him losing to Jason. As I mentioned a moment ago, the notion that a gay inmate couldn't win is so ridiculous that Ryan was apparently the only person to bet on Jason, and he looks like he's walked away with a tidy sum of cash. Chico even asks, how come everyone you bet on wins, with Ryan saying that he has a gift, when in reality, and as with all boxing, he had a 50-50 chance of winning anyway. But you've got to think that had he sat this one out, he could have reduced suspicions about his betting. Kenny gives Miguel some grief about losing to Jason, and obviously this loss has embarrassed the Latinos and lost them some credibility. El Cid saying that Miguel made them look like a bunch of mariconas, a derogatory term for a lesbian, and Miguel and El Cid get into a shoving match, prompting Clayton to run down and zap El Cid in the neck with a stun gun, not a taser, that's a brand name, which he sneaked in before his shift started. How did a goddamn stun gun make it through security? Well, probably the same way the drugs get through. Well, find out who had his eyes closed. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Leo. What about Hughes, the guy who used the stun gun? He's tangled with Latinos, he smuggles in an illegal weapon, he zaps Hernandez for a minor infraction, the guy's out of fucking control, Leo! You don't understand what it's like being a CEO. Oh, come on. You never have and you never will. Look, Hughes fucked up and I will deal with it. Case closed. As with most cases, laws and policies vary state by state, but at the time of broadcast, stun guns were not used by law enforcement in New York State, so Clayton has actually committed a crime here. Between 2001 and 2012, news outlet Reuters documented 104 deaths involving stun guns, while a report by Amnesty International attributed over 500 deaths to their use by police either during arrest or in prison, the top three states being California with 92 deaths, followed by Florida with 65, rounded out by Texas with 37. In September 2016, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, made 20 stun guns available to be used by guards at Rikers Island, following an increased number of violent attacks on COs. Possession of a stun gun in New York State by anyone other than law enforcement or authorized military service members wasn't permitted until 2019, when a ban on stun guns was deemed unconstitutional by the US Supreme Court citing the District of Columbia versus Heller case 
and finding it to be a violation of the Second Amendment, which protects an individual's right to possess firearms, even those that didn't exist when the Bill of Rights was added to the US Constitution, and used them for lawful purposes. While it's no longer illegal to own one, use of a stun gun for use in a crime is still classed as a Class E felony, and is punishable by a fine of up to $5,000, and in some cases a prison sentence of between 1 and 15 years. Leo calls Clayton to his office to discuss the stun gun incident, and as Clayton tries to apologise, he tells him to take a look at a photo on his desk. He tells Clayton to get right in there and take a nice close look at the picture, and quick as a flash he forces Clayton down on the desk, saying that his father lost his life as quick as that, and asks if Clayton thinks he's invincible. Clayton says that he needed an advantage to get respect, and assures Leo that it won't happen again. Leo telling him damn right it won't, because he's transferring Clayton out of M-City into a permanent position in the library. Clayton protests, but Leo tells him to leave, and that he has to explain to his staff why Clayton is only getting a slap on the wrist. We get a quick scene in the library of Kenny and Junior mocking Clayton and his stun gun, to close out a very short Act 3. <laughs> Act 4 gets underway on death row with Richie Hanlon full of beans as he's getting ready to go to his appeal hearing. He tells Shirley that he has a good feeling about it, but he's also decided that he's going to say that he and Schillinger killed Vogel together, and that while he'll still die as a result, at least he'll have some justice. They say the goodbyes to each other in what's a really sweet moment, made all the sweeter by Shirley realising that she hasn't quite finished Richie's sweater. We cut to M-City where Nikolai is regaling Rebidon Boosmalas with stories of his past in Russia, claiming to be part of the Thieves' Law Gang, which is based on a real-world concept commonly known as the Vor. They tend to be professional criminals and hold a position of power amongst other mobsters within Russian organised crime. The tattoo designs often carry particular meanings, although not always literal ones. The one that Nikolai has appears to be an eagle, which traditionally indicated a senior authority figure within the group, and if the eagle was carrying someone in their talons, that was indicative of that person being a rapist although this design doesn't seem to have that. Other designs used included stars to indicate authority, dragons showing that a person had stolen state property, while a hooded executioner was symbolic of that person having murdered a relative. Nikolai tells of stories of he and his comrades robbing the homes of wealthy Russians, but that he was caught and sent to Tulun, which is a town about 400 miles from the Mongolian border, although there doesn't seem to be any evidence of a gulag camp having been there. So much like what I touched upon last episode, and we'll see this in a few moments, Nikolai could be lying about his criminal past. He also seems to be bullshitting about how he came to America, saying that he bribed a magistrate and was released early. And when Ribado asks how the Immigration and Naturalization Service, more commonly known as the INS, allowed Nikolai into the country with a criminal past, Nikolai says that he just lied on the application, and that he was rumbled by the Ministry of Internal Affairs back in Russia, who cooperated with the FBI to follow him, tap his phones, etc. And you just think, oh, come off it, mate, you were only selling some dodgy diamonds. Ribado is hanging on everywhere that Nikolai is saying. He's completely enamoured. But I'm not buying any of this. I think Nikolai is full of shit. I'm not saying that he isn't involved in some way with the Russian crime gangs, but I don't think he's as high-ranking as he's making out. 
Beecher and Andrew join them, and Beecher, by Tom Fontana's own admission, is there purely to pour on the exposition, explaining that Richie has had his murder conviction overturned due to a technicality, describing it as some loophole in the law, which we never find out about, and that he's on his way back to M-City to see out his original drug conviction. I can see why this was done this way, and we'll talk more about some stuff that got cut later on. It just helps with the timing of the episode, and Richie is only a minor character. Had the storyline been given to one of the more prominent characters, it probably would have been given more time, but this scene serves its purpose to close that part of Richie's story off and get him back in MC. Nikolai calls it a time to celebrate, and lets on about having some Russian vodka in his cell, which Boosmalis seems really excited to try. When Ribado asks how he managed to get it in, Nikolai speaks Russian first and then says, When life is good, it's better not to question why. Or to put it another way, I haven't thought of a lie for that yet, so please don't ask me again. Richie returns and the Nazis obviously aren't pleased to see him, but everybody else seems quite welcoming by MC standards. Nikolai even giving him a little bow, and Richie seems happy to be back, something that carries over into the next scene in the showers. Nikolai is in there having a shave, and Richie comes in again full of the joys, and says that he's happy to be alive. Nikolai joins him in the shower and makes a pass at Richie, who says that it's been a while, and as Nikolai goes to kiss his neck, he slips a razor blade from his mouth and swipes at Richie's throat. Richie collapses to the ground as Nikolai tells him that he lied, and that Vogel was his friend, not his enemy, as he leaves the showers and Richie to die in a pool of his own blood. When I was re-watching this, my wife happened to catch this part of the episode, and she was taken aback by how violent that kill was. And it is a surprising one. Nikolai couldn't have known that Richie was going to come in the shower room at that exact moment, so he won't have had the razor blade prepped. The only way he could have done that would have been to have popped the blade out of his razor while Richie is blabbing away about being happy. And because we don't see him do that on screen, it only adds to the surprise. A really well done scene, this one. And tragically ironic that Richie still ended up dying for a murder that he didn't commit. Act 4 closes with Augustus narrating about the final plague being the worst of all. The one where God kills all the firstborn sons in Egypt, as we see Shirley ripping apart Richie's sweater and looking across at his empty cell before closing her makeshift curtain to close the scene. That shot of the empty cell was actually shot a week after everything else. It was something that Tom Fontana went back to film after seeing it in the edit. And it does add to the scene as it emphasises Shirley's loneliness on death row, but also that she has lost her only true friend. Lights out, Shirley. Rare territory then, as we go into Act 5 with a flashback of Gloria telling Napper about his HIV diagnosis, as we cut to Ray paying him a visit in his cell. Napper offers him a cappuccino, and Ray can't believe that he's allowed a coffee machine in his cell, almost like he's jealous that he hasn't got one. But Napper says that the guards see the inmates in Unit E as being dead already, so they pretty much let them do what they want. Ray takes a seat, and Napper says that he's always seen him as a hack in black, which could be a law-based tribute to ACDC. And Ray admits that a lot of the inmates don't trust him, but he wants to show that he isn't Leo's stooge. Napa, however, explains that for him it goes deeper, the Italian community of course being deeply Catholic, and that when he was growing up you became one of four things, a doctor, a lawyer, a priest, or a quote-unquote businessman. 
I love the different emphasis that he puts on the word businessman. And Ray even says that he knows what Napper is meaning, but I love that they're basically saying mobster but not saying it at the same time. The two talk about how in order to become a businessman, you had to burn a picture of a saint. Ray saying that doing so renounced a person's obligations to the church and proved loyalty to the other businessmen. This initiation ritual to become a made man or a man of honour in the Mafia had its first known occurrence back in 1877 in Sicily, and also included drops of blood being on the picture that you were burning. The ritual's first public exposure, as well as acknowledging the existence of the Italian-American Mafia, came in October 1963 when Joe Valacci, who had been working as a police informer in order to avoid the death penalty while in prison for a 1959 narcotics conviction, testified to the McClellan Committee in what became known as the Valacci Hearings, violating his omerta, the code of silence, and breaking his blood oath. Other instances of exposing the ritual include the tape recording of one for the Patriarca family in Medford, Massachusetts in October 1989, following a five-year investigation, resulting in 11 arrests, while in Canada in 2015, the Bonanno family were secretly recorded conducting the induction ceremony of an undercover police agent, and which led to the arrest of 13 Mafia members, including Domencio Violi of the Lupino crime family in Hamilton, Ontario, who was acting as the underboss of the Magadino family in Buffalo, New York. The ritual's place in mainstream popular culture was cemented in March 2001, during the third season of The Sopranos in the episode Fortunate Son, which featured the Mafia initiation of Christopher Moltisanti. Napa takes his own seat and says that he thought the tests were wrong, and that he's had his own doctor check the results, but that the results were in fact accurate. Ray mentions that HIV is no longer a death sentence, which we've covered on the show before with the advances in medication, but Napa politely tells him to hold his breath as he's heard the speeches, and that in his business, you're always ready to die a quick death but this will be different because it gives him a chance to think and reflect on his life. He tells Ray that he wants to make a confession, and that he wants to confess to everything that he's done in the course of his life. And he means everything. So Ray best get comfy, and you might as well get another cappuccino on the go, as I feel like he's going to be there for a while. The tension gets broken a little bit with Napa having to ask Ray to get him started, because it's been a while since he confessed which was another of those little comedy moments that the show does so well, but it also humanises Napper a little bit in the process. Back in M-City, Adebisi approaches Chucky, who sat playing cards, and asks to speak with him. He's taken to calling Chucky boss, just like how he used to with Napper, and tells him about how Nino taught him how to play Pinocchio. Chucky corrected him, saying that it's Pinochle, which was another good callback, and he calls Adebisi a dumb fuck. Adebisi says that he and Nino used to be good friends and good partners, and that maybe he and Chucky could be the same, but Chucky doesn't seem to be going for it, saying that he's already partners with Kenny. When Adebisi points out that Chucky hates Kenny, Chucky says that he hates Adebisi too, and that he still remembers him splitting his head open. Adebisi saying, well, you were trying to kill me, which is as good a reason as any to crack somebody's head open. But he says that he thinks that Chucky also saw him as a strong enemy, and that if he was a strong enemy then maybe he can be a stronger ally, which gets Chucky's attention. Much like Kenny leading the homeboys, Chucky doesn't seem to look at the bigger picture, but I suppose he is new to his role as leader, so I'm willing to let that go. Adebisi says that if something were to happen to Kenny, then that would seal their partnership, which Chucky agrees to, and which in turn brings a smile to Adebisi's face as he heads off, passing Kenny and Junior along the way. 
Junior says that they need to take out Adebisi, but Kenny is under orders from Napa to chill. So for once, Kenny is actually doing as he's told. But he's soon talked around when Junior mentions about Napa being gone, and they pass the Italians who share knowing glances at each other. In the computer room, Adebisi meets up with El Cid and Chico. I know you're having trouble with Wangla and his crew. Yeah, those bitches. Chico, you wanna let the man talk? This is simple. You help me get rid of the niggas, we take over the drug trade. Simple, huh? What about the white guys? They don't care who they work with, as long as the job gets done. You're asking us to help you get rid of your people. They are not my people. I am an African. Okay. Okay, it'll be seen. Deal. Gentlemen, this room here is the uh, computer room. Call me crazy, but I think when I see people in this room, they should be using computers. But you three aren't. Which leads me to guess, you know, because I'm such a bright fella, that you're here for a different reason. Now, forgive me for being distrustful. That probably means you're up to no good. That's right. Come on, take a hike. Let's go. You too, Simon. I am using the computer. Ah. Well, can I give you one little small suggestion? Turn it on. I really liked Murphy giving them a telling off, and the way that the three of them just sit there, it's like a headmaster telling his students off. So Adebisi hits a button and the computer comes on, and shows another Pharaoh Augustus monologue on the screen this time, which Adebisi reacts to as if he can see it, and this is something that I actually had a real problem with. It just doesn't make any sense within the context of the show. Not so much in what Augustus is saying, because that ties into all his other segments, but Adebisi seeing him on screen, why? He knows who Augustus is, so is he listening to what's being said? Is he wondering why he's seeing Augustus on the screen? And if he can see him, can other inmates see him in this way? It just doesn't make sense in terms of what we've come to know from the show. Had they been able to bring back Zeke's Mokay to do this part, that maybe could have worked, but what we got took me completely out of the episode for a moment. Schillinger is handing out the mail and he sees Beecher being all friendly with Andrew, but we soon head off into something else with Kenny picking up his post. He heads over to Junior and Poet and opens his mail, and he's received a birthday card to celebrate his 18th birthday. And Poet suggests that the three of them head off to celebrate by taking a hit of drugs, but Kenny has a phone call to make first. He calls his wife asking how the baby is, and asks if she forgot his birthday, but he seems okay about it. He mentions about writing to her asking for some new boots, as we slowly track down and see that they're in a bit of a state. He says goodbye and then heads off for a visit with his mum, Rosetta, played by Sybil Walker, whose father in real life was an attorney and later served as a court judge. Kenny asks if she's seen his wife, but Rosetta says that she hasn't recently, lasting the baby about three weeks previously as she had to look after him for the weekend. Kenny seems a tad suspicious, but Rosetta says that his wife was visiting a sick friend, which has got to be the oldest excuse going, and even she thinks that was bullshit. She talks about his wife going off gallivanting, great word that, and that she suspects her of hanging around with Ronnie Smith, which sets Kenny off and who he obviously has heat with. She mentions about having other suspicions too, and after a bit of hesitation, she says that she thinks Ronnie is hurting Kenny's child saying that she's noticed bruises. 
Kenny throws the phone down in a rage and bangs on the glass, telling his mum to get his son as he's dragged away by guards. Back in M-City, Kenny is ranting away to Junior, saying that all women is bitches. He seems at a loss with what to do, being locked away in Oz, but Junior says that they know people who can make it right, and all Junior has to do is make a call, and there's no way the cops could trace it back to Kenny. Even if the call was to get picked up in a random search, it would be Junior making the call, so if they were caught, Kenny would still be in the clear. It's a bit of a risk for Junior to be making, but it's a rare showing that Kenny actually does have some followers. Not worrying about the price, Kenny tells Junior to make the call, saying that he wants Ronnie Smith dead. They do a little street handshake thingy as Junior leaves to go and make the deal, but as he does, Kenny calls him back, saying that he wants his wife killed too, Junior giving a little nod. The way that Kenny just threw it in at the end to have his wife killed, almost as if it was an afterthought, added a layer to Kenny that we haven't seen so far. He always talks a big game, but he's still a child at the end of the day, and we've seen many examples of him not thinking things through and not seeing the bigger picture, whereas on this occasion, his lack of planning adds a darker side to him. Junior makes the call, nodding at Kenny implying that it's done, and Kenny then calls his mum, telling her repeatedly to get the baby out of the house. Augustus narrates about the Israelites' supposed freedom from Pharaoh, when in actuality they warred for centuries against the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites before finally succumbing to the Romans, as the episode closes on Kenny with his birthday cupcake singing happy birthday to himself. And he also seems to have treated himself to a birthday haircut, which may or may not be a continuity error. Kenny hasn't had this haircut at any other point in the episode, which makes me think that Augustus' final monologue may have been the original ending, and that this was moved during the edit. As Kenny sings his song, Adabezi approaches from behind, stealing the final lines, and blowing out the candle to close the episode. Hey yo, Crooks, you coming? Nah, yo. I'm gonna catch up to y'all in a minute, though. Happy birthday to me. Happy motherfucking birthday to me. Happy birthday. To Kenny. Happy birthday to you. So there you go, Series 3, Episode 4, Unnatural Disasters. On my original rewatch, I wasn't overly keen on this one, but as I watched it again when making notes, I found a lot more that I enjoyed about it, and ended up really enjoying it much more than the previous episode. Miguel has been given a lot more to do now that he's out of solitary for the time being, Schillinger is feeling vulnerable with what might happen to his son mixing with his enemies, and a new alliance between Chucky and Adebisi seems to be on the horizon. The boxing tournament continues to add some fun to the show, and Nikolai carries out one of the more shocking and most brutal killings that we've seen on the show so far. Kenny ordering a hit on his wife and her lover adds a string to his bow, and there's continuing dissension among the Muslims, which will only get worse if Poet spills the beans about what he saw between Saeed and Trisha. Overall, a much improved episode from last time, and I feel like this got the third series back on track. Get the fuck out of my office. Things that were cut from this episode, there was a scene early on in the episode which had Schillinger telling the other Aryans to ignore Andrew until he gets clean from his drug habit, saying if he wants to cut us out with that fucking crap, we'll cut him out. 
as well as an inmate's council scene voting on keeping Miss Sally's schoolyard as the TV show of choice. Kudney objects and looks to Saeed for support, but Saeed doesn't want to be involved. It's put to a vote and Kudney is outvoted, with Saeed abstaining, so Miss Sally stays on the TV. Schillinger telling the Aryans to ignore Andrew is mentioned during the scene where Beecher goes to talk with McManus, so I can understand why that was cut. While Saeed voting on something as titillating as Miss Sally would have been another example of him struggling with his urges, which by this point are well established, so that scene wasn't really required. Both scenes only run for about 30 seconds, so wouldn't have been cut for timing necessarily, but wouldn't have added anything had they been left in, so ended up on the cutting room floor. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Richie Hanlon, played by Jordan Lage. After leaving the show, Jordan has continued to act in minor roles on TV, including appearances on shows such as All My Children, appearing in 10 episodes between 2003 and 2009, as well as multiple episodes of As the World Turns, Law and Order, the final season of Boardwalk Empire, The Path, his final appearance coming in an episode titled Oz, The Looming Tower, and Madam Secretary, as well as credits for shows such as Ugly Betty, Nurse Jackie, The Blacklist, Taken, and Better Call Saul. In addition to appearing on the small screen, Jordan has appeared in movies such as The Believer, World Trade Center, Michael Clayton, reuniting with Oz co-star Terry Sapico, You Don't Know Jack, directed and produced by Oz executive producer Barry Levinson and produced by Tom Fontana, as well as the Ridley Scott-directed Body of Lies, The Girl in the Book, and Touched. His biggest success on film came in 2000's State and Maine, appearing alongside William H. Macy, with the film winning Best Ensemble Cast Awards from the Online Film Critics Society, the National Board of Review, and the Florida Film Critics Circle, in addition to receiving a Grammy Award nomination. Despite his screen appearances, Jordan's first love has always been the theatre, appearing on Broadway in The Best Man in 2000, while in 2005 he appeared in the Tony Award-winning production of Glengarry Glen Ross, as well as reuniting with George Mofurgeon in The Lonely Way for New York's Mint Theatre Company, and the Tony Award-nominated Inherit the Wind in 2007. Jordan has also continued to undertake the work of his mentor David Mamet, appearing on Broadway in productions of Speed the Plow, Race, and the 2020 production of American Buffalo, as well as amounting an extensive off-Broadway and regional theatre resume. In addition to his acting, Jordan has also worked as a theatre director and writer, and also as an academic, teaching acting at various universities through the Atlantic Theatre Company Acting School. Be sure to follow Jordan on Twitter using the handle at Jordan Lage. He is a fountain of knowledge on both film and theatre, and you can read his full resume at jordanlage.com. Also be sure to read his blog detailing the best of New York at nyscenonthestreets.blogspot.com. And I just want to say a huge personal thank you to Jordan for his participation on the podcast. Jordan went above and beyond with what I asked for him when I first contacted him about making an introduction for the show. And when we initially got in touch, it was shortly after the death of George Morfurgeon, and Jordan was kind enough to share a bunch of stories about George and what knowing him meant to him personally. So a big, big thank you to Jordan Lage for sharing those and for your involvement with the podcast. The Oz One and Done Club also gained some new members, the first being Enid Graham, appearing as McManus' lawyer. While they didn't share any scenes together in this episode, Enid would appear in the 2011 film Silver Tongues, starring alongside Lee Tergerson, 
as well as appearing in seven episodes of HBO's Boardwalk Empire, along with recurring roles in Grey's Anatomy, The Sinner, and The Red Line, with her most recent credit being for a season four episode of Bull on CBS. Also in the club are Bruce McVitie, who continues to act, with his most recent appearance coming in 2019's A Christmas Wish, as well as having two projects in post-production, and Kevin Greer, who postars continued to act on TV, his final appearance coming in 2016 for an episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Kevin Greer passed away at the age of 64 on January 25th, 2017. After directing this episode of Oz, Charles Palminteri returned to acting, voicing Smokey in 1999's Stuart Little, as well as a number of other credits, but would return to the director's chair in 2002 to direct the TV movie Women vs. Men, and again in 2004 for Noel, which also featured appearances from his two children, Gabriella and Dante. In 2005, he landed the recurring role of Captain Frank McNeil in the USA Network reboot of Kojak, although the show only lasted one season. In 2007, Chaz made his return to the stage for the Broadway debut of A Bronx Tale at the Walter Care Theatre with direction by Jerry Zaks, running from October 4th to February 24th, 2008. Chaz was nominated for an Outstanding Solo Performance Award at the Outer Critics Circle Awards and also embarked on a national tour. The success of A Bronx Tale continued years later when on February 4th, 2016, a musical version of the show with a book by Chaz Direction by Robert De Niro and Jerry Zaks, as well as music by Alan Menken and lyrics by Glenn Slater, debuted at the Peppermill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey. After some tinkering, the show began previews on November 3rd, before officially opening on December 1st, 2016 at the Longacre Theatre in Midtown Manhattan. After over 700 performances and with Chaz joining the cast for a brief time reprising his role as Sonny, the show closed on August 5th, 2018, and began a national tour in Rochester, New York in October of that year. Often seen in mafioso-style roles, including two episodes of Blue Bloods on CBS, Chaz has also had recurring roles in Rizzoli and Isles on TNT, as well as ABC's Modern Family and Godfather of Harlem, an epics prequel series to 2007's American Gangster. Chaz is also credited as a writer on the 2018 TV movie Unorganised Crime, as well as the announced Mob Street, although that show has yet to reach pre-production, and his most recent acting credit came for an appearance in the 2020 movie Clover, not to be confused with the 1997 TV movie of the same name that starred Ernie Hudson. At the time of recording, Chaz is scheduled to appear in the movies On the River and The Stone Pony, both of which are in the early stages of production. My episode MVP I'm going to give to Sister Pete for this episode. Nobody on the inmate side of things did anything to really deserve it. Everyone was a bit of a dick in this episode, even the ones who were usually rooting for. So by her managing to convince Leo to let Miguel out of solitary and by trying to get the ball rolling with the victim offender program, Sister Pete takes the award for this episode. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, Castro Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can also catch the show on podchaser.com. All of those places have the first two series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 3 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. Leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast. 
And if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we're going postal as we talk about Series 3, Episode 5, US Mail, where Poet has some words for Saeed, Schillinger makes a play for Parent of the Year, the first round of the boxing tournament concludes, and Kenny is in a whole heap of trouble with an old foe. All of this and more on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Please, please, please.